Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 5. We'll be reading both chapter 5 and chapter 6 today. In the last episode, I mentioned that most commentators identify three distinct units within the thought and structure of Hosea. Chapters 1 to 3 focus on the biographical information. They uh, zero in on the main metaphors of marriage and family in terms of uh, what they say about God's relationship and dealing with Israel. Chapters 4 to 11 contain a lengthy indictment wherein God details all the sins and idolatries of Israel. And then the last section, running from chapter 12 through chapter 14, provides some historical illustrations and a final call to authentic repentance. So obviously here in chapter 5, we are dealing with God's indictment of the people of Israel. In chapter 4, the indictment was general in nature, but here in chapter 5, the leaders of the nation come under particular scrutiny. As verse 1 makes clear, this indictment is directed at the people generally, but at the leaders, at the priesthood and the monarchy in particular. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Now, it's difficult for us to know precisely what is meant by these references to Mizpah and Tabor. Obviously, it would have made perfect sense to the people to whom this prophecy was originally given. Something must have happened of symbolic value at each of those sites, but we can't be sure today what exactly that was. Uh, Some suggest that Mizpah and Tabor, along with Bethel and Gilgal, had become the main regional worship centers, and that certainly does fit with the effect described in verse 2. These sites caused people to be ensnared in judgment worthy practices. So whatever it is that God is judging Israel for, it was coming from here. Some scholars have even suggested that Mizpah and Tabor were the places where Israel began to participate in child sacrifices. Whether that is the case or whether there was something else judgment worthy going on here, we can't say for sure. But that God saw and that he was going to respond, we certainly can say for sure. And that is the point being made in verse 3. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Now, I suppose here is as good a place as any to just remind you that in the Bible, Ephraim is often just another name for Israel. So stylistically, you're going to see those interchange. O Ephraim means O Israel. O Ephraim, O Israel, you have played the whore. You are defiled. So here God says that you may not know me. That was part of the charge he made back against them in chapter four. You don't know me anymore, but I know you. I see you. 
and what you are doing is not hidden from me. You have given yourself to these foreign gods, you have played the whore, and you are defiled. That's what's being said in verse 3. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Now, that is an absolutely fascinating verse. To paraphrase Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we read the Bible generally to learn about God, to learn about us, and to learn about how God has saved us through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, this verse tells us something very important about us, about specifically the human condition. Hosea says their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord. What he's saying there is that sin is addictive. Every time we sin as human beings, we undermine our own resistance to sin. Sin is addictive. Each new sin makes the next sin even more likely. Everyone who has ever sinned knows this experientially. Sin hollows out our inner defenses. Sin rewires our brain chemistry. Sin gets inside us and begins to control us. That is exactly what Hosea is saying here. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Now, if you could somehow get them into a moment of clarity and, and you could ask them, Israel, would, would you like to return to God? They'd probably say yes. But no such moment of clarity is possible. They are totally enslaved and completely disoriented and deluded by their sin. And that is why getting them to the place of real repentance will require such extreme measures. Derek Kidner says insightfully here, there is no pretense here that reconciliation can be easy or penitence a mere gesture of apology. The whole book is, from one angle, a study of what it means to turn back to God. So in this passage, the nation is confronted with two unconsidered facts, the stranglehold of its own habits and the hiddenness of God for worshipers who are insincere, closed quote. So they are addicted and they are deceived. They don't even know how far away from God they are. They think that they're talking to God when they worship, when in fact all they're doing is talking to the spirit of whoredom inside themselves. It is hard for such people to return to the Lord. Humanly speaking, it is utterly impossible. Verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields." They think their worship will bring them closer to God. But in fact, the prophet says, it's their worship that's leading them further and further astray. Their God is not God. Even when they think they're worshiping God, they're worshiping a God that doesn't exist. A God that is half Yahweh and half Baal. Such a God exists only in their deluded imaginations. 
They are seekers. There's no doubt about that. But because they are looking where and how they are, they shall seek in vain. They will not find the Lord, for he has withdrawn from them. Verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Most commentators agree that this whole section from verse 8 through 15 reflects upon a historical event known as the Syro-Ephraimite War. Now, as we've mentioned before, I think particularly of the series we did on Daniel, the people of Israel found themselves in a difficult position, geopolitically speaking. They lived on a narrow stretch of land connecting two massive continents, and therefore they often found themselves pressured between two rival empires. The situation of Israel and Judah can be compared to the situation of Poland in the 20th century. Poland occupied land between the great power of the East in the USSR and the great power of the West in terms of the nation of Germany. And Poland's great crisis in the 20th century had to do with whether or not she should lean left or right. Should she ally with Russia against Germany or Germany against Russia? And of course, in the end, she was trampled on and ravaged by both. Such was often the case in Israel and Judah. So Israel was at times allied with Assyria and at other times allied with Egypt. And things could change in a hurry. And they often did. And one of those changes, one of those great upheavals, is now known to us as the Syro-Ephraimite War. It refers to a time when Israel, the kingdom in the north, allied herself with Syria the country directly to her north. They co-rebelled against the empire of Assyria. Now, it's easy to get Syria and Assyria confused as Bible readers. That's pretty common. Uh, it's helpful to remember that Assyria was the empire arising out of what is today northern Iraq, while Syria was the country just north of Israel, where, in fact, the nation of Syria remains to this day. So Israel and Syria decide to rebel against Assyria, and they are supported. They become proxies, basically, for Egypt, the great empire of the West. However, between Israel and Egypt lay the nation of Judah. So Syria and Israel wanted Judah to join their rebellion so that there would be clean lines of supply all the way from Egypt to Damascus. But Judah wasn't interested. Judah had been relatively independent and had enjoyed 
some geographical isolation, hidden as she was behind Syria and Israel. So she refused. Not only that, but she went behind their backs and actually allied with Assyria, offering to pay tribute. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16, 7-8. Well, naturally, Syria and Israel felt they had no option but to attack Judah to force her into the alliance. But it was all for naught. In 733 BC, Assyria attacked Israel and subdued her, taking many thousands of people into captivity and deporting them to the far reaches of her empire. In 732, Assyria turned on Syria and destroyed Damascus, killing Rezin, their king, and deporting many of their people as well. It was an unmitigated disaster, politically speaking. Egypt didn't deliver and the proxies were thoroughly crushed. And Judah did not emerge unscathed. She became effectively part of the Assyrian Empire. But apparently, in the chaos of war and reorganization, she tried to snip off some territory that had formerly belonged to northern Israel. That's the meaning of verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. So in the chaos of war, they tried to steal land from their brother. Who does that? Well, whoever does that will be judged by the Lord. So that's the background to all these verses. Basically, Israel and Judah spend decades trying to answer the question, are we going to look west to Egypt or east to Assyria? West or east? That was the question on everyone's mind. And the prophet Hosea says, why is it that no one in the leadership, no one in the priesthood, no one in the ruling class, no one ever considered a third option? All you've ever been talking about was east or west. Not a single one of you ever suggested looking up. And therefore, God will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to Judah. I will tear you up and carry you off, God says, and there will be no one to come to your aid. That's the message that the prophet throws down. And then in chapter 6, 1 to 3, the people answer. They say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth. Now, at first glance, sounds like all is well. The prophet warned and the people responded. Praise the Lord. But if you read carefully, you notice that they don't really seem to be taking their sin that seriously. And they expect a very quick process of restoration. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Daniel Carroll says here, this sinful people presume that a favorable verdict from God will come in quick order. Another sign that they appreciate neither the seriousness of their transgressions nor the uselessness of their religious activities. Closed quote. That interpretation is supported by the words that follow. In verse 4, God answers the people. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. 
Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. You don't take anything seriously, God says in these verses. You, you, get, you get passionate about repentance for about 30 seconds, and then like the dew, it burns away. This is the worldly grief that leads to death in 2 Corinthians 7.10. This is not real. This is not lasting or authentic. I know that, God says, because the change in you is only skin deep. You make some changes in your worship. You, you mouth some things. But you don't really get serious about your covenant relationship with me. You don't get serious about knowing me. You just raise your hands a little higher and put a little more money in the plate to put that in a modern idiom. But fundamentally, God says, you are unchanged. Verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people." You are still walking in the way of Adam, God says. That's the verdict. You are still deciding right and wrong for yourself. You are still faithless. You are still running headlong on the path to hell. And what's worse is that your priests are leading the way. They band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. So we are not yet reformed, Israel. We are not yet reformed, Judah. You are still captive to the spirit of whoredom. You remain defiled and you are infecting everyone you come in contact with. So there's more work to do, God says. The purge and the scourge have only begun and real repentance lies far in the future. But it will come however long and however hard. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. 
your word is a lamp unto my feet. 